Last week, Lindy kicked us off, and um, we had the setting for this first scene. And we know that Elimelech took his family from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab. And why did he do that? Anybody? No food, no bread in the house of bread. So they go to Moab. And this was very interesting to us because we know that these that the Moabites had been enemies of Israel. And then what happens is Elimelech dies. And then Naomi uh, marries her sons, her two sons, married two Moabite women, um, Orpah and Ruth. And then what happens? They die. Yeah, it's just like famine, tragedy, death, all these awful things. And so that really um, sets the stage for us. And they're there for 10 years. And it's funny, this past week, my daughter's been in the study, and she was asking me about the word sojourn. She's like, Mom, what is sojourn? And it's like, I was like, Ella, like you looked it up in the dictionary. She couldn't really, like, she was having a hard time grasping it. It was like, well, they didn't plan to stay there. They didn't plan to stay there. They were just like, you know, we're going to go here for a while. But then we know that they stayed. And they stayed there for at least 10 years because we know that um, after they died, that they were there for 10 years until the sons died. Um, and I relate to that. I can relate to this story very well, and this is how I was painting the picture for my daughter, is um, we moved overseas. We moved overseas um, 10 years ago, actually. I think it was 10 or 11. Um, and we were sojourners. My husband fed me the line of, we can do anything for nine months, anything. I had a four-month-old and a not even three-year-old, and we packed everything up. And we put it in storage because you can do anything for nine months, ladies. You can even move to a North African country called Morocco. And you can stay there for nine months, except it wasn't nine months. We stayed there for nine years. So we went from sojourners to, like, we stayed there and we lived there. And we, we got to know these people. Um, and I only tell you that context because I want us to, to see that as we walk into this relationship between Ruth and Naomi, and Orpah. And I really think like that really helped me set the stage of she knew these women, she loved these women. And so sometimes when in our minds when we're thinking about this, it just helps to really put ourselves in their shoes and what's happening. So here we open to this scene, and um, Naomi, she, ar- she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had what? visited his people, and he had given them food. So there's this whole theme happening right now of return, and you read it all through this chapter, return, return. And that's why we circled it, because it's a repeated word, and those repeated words clue us into the theme. So there's this theme of return, and she's going to go back. She's going to go back to her people. Um, And I want to just camp out here and just kind of answer some questions about returning. Um, Who is returning? Naomi's returning. And she's not returning alone. She's returning with her daughters-in-law. So she's taking Ruth and Orpah with her. And where is she returning to? She's going back to Bethlehem, right? Why? Why is she going back? What has happened? There's food. So the house of bread is now living up to, his na- to its name, and there is food. Um, now we can guess a couple things from that. Maybe, we know this was the time of the judges, so we know that they had rebelled against God, and then God would bring famine, or he would bring enemies, or something would happen in order to bring repentance and for their return back to God. So maybe this had happened. Maybe there was repentance from Israel. Maybe God had had the the rains come down, and the fields were now had um, barley and wheat. 
Um, we can assume that. Um, and so then they're returning to the house of bread. And I will tell you, my ears were like, bink, when I, when I read this part. They heard in the fields of Moab. How interesting. How interesting that in the fields of Moab, a country that does not see the Lord um, as God, is talking about him, talking about what's happening. This reminded me um, in Joshua, if you've read the story of Rahab. And when the spies come in and they're asking her for help, and I just want to read this really cla- really fast. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og and the two kings of the Amorites whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed. So God's reputation is preceding him. It's preceding him. They are talking. This happened way back when they were um, in Joshua, when they were taking over, when they were conquering. People were talking about it, and they're still talking about it. They're talking about it in Moab. They're talking in the fields of, all of a sudden, there's, there's this wheat. Like, I guess God's doing things again. I, I don't know what's happened, but it's there. And I think that's just really, really cool. And it's an application to us. People are talking about our God. And how are our lives reflecting that? What do they see in us about Jesus that they're going to talk about? What are we exhibiting from the Spirit, being conformed more in the image of Christ that people are taking away from us? So um, she says, the Lord has visited his people and given him food. And now just that phrase right there, when it says the Lord has visited his people, it is like he has paid attention to their need. He has come to the aid of his people. And so then what do they do? They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And then there's this first conversation. We know that they must be some, somewhere away from Moab because they're journeying, walking. Um, and there's this first conversation. And what does Naomi say? She turns to her daughters-in-law and says, go return. Go return. Go back. And where does she tell them to go? To your mother's house. That's weird. Don't your mom and dad live together? Well, yes, they do. This was a phrase that was given when they said, in your mother's house, because it was really a place for arranging marriages. Um, we, I saw this in Genesis. Let me see what it is. Um, it is in Genesis 24 with Rebecca and Isaac. And when she's at the well and um, Abraham has sent his servant to go look for a wife for Isaac, and he finds Rebecca at the well who says, may I give you water, but not just you and your camels. you know. And then he has this whole speech with her and she runs to her mother's house. That's the phrase used. So, so what we can understand from this is not only is Naomi telling them to return, but she's saying, go to your mother's house. She's speaking about remarriage. She's speaking about them moving on. And then she, she says this incredible blessing. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And so when she says this, it is a blessing, it is a prayer, and it is a releasing of the relationship. And she is saying, now go. It's echoing the return. It's echoing the um, remarriage, because she says what? That you may find rest in the house of her husband. And now this doesn't mean get a good nap, get a good bed, you know, just take a rest. That's not what it means. What rest means here is a place of settled security. 
And it was also used synonymously with the promised land. So like when the Israelites were traveling around and wandering, the promised land was a place of rest. It was a place where they were settled. And this is what Naomi is wanting for her, for her daughters-in-law. She's wanting rest. So she is saying, you are not bound to me. Move on. Remarry. That is best for you. And my favorite part of this is the beginning when she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you helped out kindly with the dead and with me. And what she is saying there is, may the Lord show kindness to you. You read that in the NIV. And I just want to take a minute right here because um, this word, kindness, is a very important word in the Old Testament. It's a word, hesed. Um, And there's not even one English word to encompass it because it just has like so many ways to describe what it is. Here, I'll give you a few. Loyalty, love, responsibility, kindness, compassion, steadfast love. It occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. And here's a good definition of it. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And so that is what Naomi is asking for her girls, calling her girls, her daughters-in-law. And she wants, she has seen, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown us kindness, referring to herself um, and her husband and her sons. So what does that tell us? That God can give these things. He gives said. He is said. Actually, in Genesis, no, in Exodus, is when God uses said to describe his own character. So all of those things that I have said, that is who God is. He is all of those things. In Genesis, we see that said is exceptional favor. So it's having favor on. It's another thing that Naomi is speaking is, may God have favor on you. And we're reading here about said, like in these historical books, and as we're seeing here, it's reciprocal. It's reciprocal between people. So like Ruth and Orpah have shown said to Naomi and her husband, right? And so we'll see further along as we get down into this book about Kindness, where we see this word has said, it's going to continue to be used. It's going to continue to be displayed um, between people, between the main characters of the story. But here's what I want you to take away from it: is that God is has said, and that He uses us broken people to be objects of has said to others. And I want to just repeat that definition again. It is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And if any of you ladies were in the Hosea study, you've heard that word before. And what's, what, when it was used there, how many of you were in Hosea? Awesome. And so when, when we saw said, this is what's interesting, in, in, the, in that prophetic book and in most of the prophetic books. How do you spell Hesed? H, oh, sorry. H-E-S-E-D. Oh, and I forgot my book. There's a really good book that I was going to show you guys that I've learned a lot from. H-E-S-E-D. And, and so in this prophetic book, we see God's abundant said in contrast to the fragile said of the Israelites. We saw that. What was it compared to? The morning dew that disappears. We learned that. We learned about that in Hosea. And also said is associated with God's covenant relationship with his people despite their waywardness. Okay, and so here's a question. Will this prayer be answered? Will this prayer be answered 
we don't know. We'll see. We'll get to read on and see. Um, and so she speaks these things, and they look, they kiss, and they lift up their voices. And, and also, kissing goodbye is very cultural. We did that overseas in Morocco, too. It's kiss, kiss, hello, kiss, kiss, goodbye. Lots of kisses if you're really good friends or haven't seen each other in a long time. So, and what is their response to her? She is saying, go, go back, remarry, forget about me. There's no ties. And they say, no, we will return with you to your people. And then what does she say? It's like the second conversation. And she's saying, no, turn back. Why would you go with me? And I don't know if any of you have done this, but she answers her question with a question. And she says, have I yet sons in my womb? And she starts this whole hypothetical thing about, you know, I am old. Can I have babies? I'm not going to remarry. Even if I should, would they have sons? And now part of that could be cultural because there is this thing called leverant marriage where if the son dies and um, then the older brother or brother could remarry that woman if he is not married and doesn't have kids. And it's kind of a saving the name. Um, Could she be talking about this? Maybe. But what she's more concerned about is, I am old. I am not going to get remarried. I'm not going to have any more kids. Your best bet is not with me. It's not with me. And that's what she's trying to say to them. And so then she goes on and says, No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for you, for for my for your sake, because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she comes from persuading them, don't come with me, don't come with me, to then this place of accusation. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. And when we see the term the Lord's hand, that is going to teach about God's irresistible power that was used, it's used in Exodus with the plagues. But when it says that his hand has gone out against me, God's hand goes out against his enemies. That his hand went out against um, Egypt, sending all the plagues. And so what Naomi is saying is, I'm an enemy. God's hand has gone out against me. She's seeing herself as his enemy. And here's a takeaway with that. Our circumstances can really cloud our vision. These things have happened to her, and she is saying, I am his enemy. He is against me. It is better off for you without me. Is that true? Is that true? So she's accusing God, and she's saying, and now she's saying, um, it is bitter to me. I mean, that's where we see the first time her using this word. And you know, i got to get her props, because she's being incredibly honest. She's being honest, and she's, but we see her heart. We see her heart. And um, just want to share Hebrews 12, 15. It says, it says, be sure that a root of bitterness does not spring up, causing trouble and defiling many. And we see that happening. We see that happening in Naomi. And what's going to happen? She's using this bitterness, like, oh, no, all these things have happened. It's not good for you to be with me. And she's pushing her girls away. She's pushing them away and saying, don't come with me. Go back. And so what do they do? They lift up their voices and wept again. They wept again. And what that could signify, again, this this weeping, it's cultural, but it's also like showing their suffering, showing their suffering. And and to this, too, I'll just say, I just want to do an application point right here about our relationships with other women. So I I told you guys I lived overseas for, um, I don't even know, I think nine years, almost ten Um, And that was the place 
that I learned I needed women who were not in my same season. Because I want you to notice here, when they wept again, when they're weeping, it's not Orpah and Ruth weeping. It is Naomi, the mother-in-law, weeping with her daughter-in-laws. So when I was overseas, I learned I needed these other women to speak life into me. I needed these women to encourage me in my marriage. They needed to speak into me as a mom, spiritually, all the things. And I can go, I can, I, I can remember conversations with these women. And I will tell you a good thing of being taken out of your homeland and put into a place like this. I mean, you bond like that, like that, especially when your living conditions are like, just, it's just hard. Living in another culture, another country is just hard. And I needed these women. I needed these women. And so it was just, it was one, I would say if I got anything, the biggest thing I got out of that nine years was those relationships. And so guess what? I moved here. I moved here. And do you know the first thing I looked for? Older women. I looked for older women. And I remember um, (laughs) calling Amy. Calling Amy and saying, can you meet with me? And she said, yes. She wouldn't have known. So this is to you younger ladies. Speak up and say, I need help. Can you just talk to me? And then Elizabeth Green, who um, has believed in me for the study, for what God is doing here. These women that have just meant so much to me. And then Karen Clark, who has just keeps telling me to be brave. And I can't emphasize this enough, you guys. These relationships across generations are key. And so to you that are in my age or younger, I'm just going to tell you, as my husband would say, I can't read your mind. And these older women, they can't read our mind. They don't know. And you might have to ask somebody. If you don't have anybody to ask, I encourage you, Please talk to your small group leader. Talk to Karen Clark. There are women here who want to mentor you. Older women, we need you speaking in our life. We need you speaking in our life. I tell you that as an almost 40-something proof the last 10 years has had women speaking into my life. We need you. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your love. We need your support. Please don't sideline. Please don't sideline. In this back half, please don't sideline. We need you. Okay, so um, <laughs> Oprah. So then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and what did she do? She left. But Ruth clung to her. And here's just what I want to say about that. The author does not talk about, doesn't go into detail about Orpah leaving, doesn't criticize her, doesn't condemn her, doesn't condone her. He just says, kissed her. And that was a sign of goodbye. And now having read this, I mean, Naomi was pretty persuasive. And she wasn't in a good place. And I don't know that she was telling Orpah the right thing. So she leaves. But the emphasis is not on Orpah leaving. I mean, that made sense. It was the sensible thing. What the, what the focus is, is that Ruth clung to her. She clung to her. She did not leave. And... Um, what that implies is loyalty and deep affection. And that, is, that word clung to is also used in marriage. It's used in Genesis, Genesis 2.24. The, 
that a man shall leave his mother and hold fast, cling to his wife. And that's what Ruth was doing. And so that's just showing us here to her loyalty, her faithfulness, the hesed that she is showing to her mother-in-law. And so then we see this third conversation as Ruth is clinging and still Naomi is saying, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. Look, follow her. She's gone back to her people and her gods. So now she's making it really personal. And she's like, look, her people, her gods, that's who you belong with. But, and she's saying, return after her. Follow her, not me. And this is like, Ruth doesn't have all speaking parts, but when she speaks, it is like mic drop because that's what she's about to do right now. And she says, do not urge me to leave you or return from you. So we all know this verse. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And so this is like the climax of the story. And she is saying, I will not abandon you and don't make me. I am going to stay with you. This is the kindness and the said continued. And she says, where you go, I'm going to go. I am not going back. I am going with you. And not just that, where you lodge, I will lodge. And what that means is stay. It's like a permanent stay. I'm staying with you. I am permanently with you. So this is a lifelong commitment. And then she says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. So she is pretty much renouncing her ethnic roots. She is saying... Those people are not my people, and that those gods are not my God. And she is taking on the identity of Naomi. She is taking on the identity of her people and her gods. She's going to take on the identity of an Israelite. Um, and then she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So where you die, I'm going. After you die, I'm not going back to Moab. I am now claiming that I am with you, and that I am with your God. And so what I see there is confession, and I see commitment. And there is all sorts of, as she said, is she not, blah, blah, you know, like all the things. But I would err on yes. She has just said, your God is my God. She is declaring Yahweh, the Lord, as her God, and the Israelites as her people. And she's saying yes. But what do we see after confession, even like in our lives now, when people accept Christ and become believers? We see confession, and we see a change in life direction. And that's what we're seeing in Ruth. She is changing her direction. She is not going back with her with her sister-in-law. She is going this way. She's going to stay with Naomi. And then this oath, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you, parts me from you. And what she's saying pretty much is, may the Lord bring disaster on me. I'm serious about this. May disaster come if I do not go through on my word to you. She's welcoming it. And this is what's funny. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she was speechless and said no more. That's why I said this was a mic drop. She was speechless. If any of you have ever been in those conversations where somebody just speaks such love over you, such kindness, and you're left speechless. 
So then I imagine it was a pretty um, quiet trip because Naomi was finally speechless after like talking the entire time and you know telling these girls to, to skedaddle. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So we started with three and we're down to two. Here's what I noticed. The two of them went on when until they came to Bethlehem. Naomi did not turn and go back. She could have. She could have issued her way forward and thought, no, this is too hard. What are they going to say about me? I left all the things. We all know where our minds go. And she could have gone back, but she didn't. She came, and she came with Ruth. So here you have this Israelite gone astray and a Moabite walking into Bethlehem. Here's what I love about that. Here's what I took away from that. Even though, even for those who have chosen the way of rebellion, there is always a way home. There's always a way home. And here's what I saw with Ruth. That God's grace brings in the outsider. Brings in the outsider. She is an outsider, and he brought her in. So here they are returning and they come to Bethlehem, and the whole, st- the whole town was stirred because of them. What does that mean? I thought, I really thought it meant like they were really mad at her. But actually, when I did some reading, it means that they were stunned. And it's more of a joyous disbelief. More of like, oh my gosh, she's back. You know, like you're excited. You haven't seen anybody in a while. Um, it's echoing with excitement. There are animated conversations happening. And the women say, is this Naomi? Is this her? We haven't seen her in a while. She's back. She's got this woman with her. This is all kind of weird. And then Naomi opens her mouth again, and she says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? For the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. So twice here, she refers to um, God as Almighty. And in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. And so who is El Shaddai? What is this describing about God? El Shaddai gives blessings, promises destinies, assigns fate to the wicked and righteous, and oversees the maintenance of justice. So this is how she's referring to God, and she's bringing these accusations again. He has caused calamity. He's punishing me. That's what she's saying. He has felt very, he's, felt, he's dealt very bitterly with me. And so here's a question about this. Her circumstances are continuing to cloud her judgment. She sees how she's seeing God is not right and true. It is not right and true. It's clouding who he is. It's also clouding how she sees herself because what has she na- renamed herself? Mara, and it means bitter. Again, I give her props for her honesty because she's really, we're seeing her humanness and we're seeing her talk about how she feels and it's coming out. But she renames herself Mara and this is what's interesting about that is it does mean bitter, but she would be very familiar of her, own, her country, her people's own story in Exodus and where Mara comes from. If you've ever read Exodus, you know that they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And we get this glimpse into Mara at the very beginning, the very beginning. 
They've been wandering that God had parted the waters. They walked right through. Three days later, they go without water. And what do they start doing? Complaining. I mean, I'd be thirsty too. But they start complaining and grumbling. And they do not call on God, whom had just done all the plagues and all the things and parted the water. Three days later, they're just complaining because they have this bitter water. And then God does this really cool thing. You know, he's like, hey, Moses, throw the wood in there and it's going to be good. You guys can drink it. It's going to be great. And that happens. But that place was called Mara because the water was bitter. Naomi would have known that. She would have known that story. But here's what's interesting. After that, God's grace is that when the next place he leads his people, guess what? There are 12 wells of water and there are 70 palm trees. He leads them to a better place. There is more water and there is shade. And then he says something to them when he's giving this little speech to his people. He refers to himself as, I am the Lord who heals you. And I think that's where Naomi just kind of missed it in this chapter. She just kind of missed it because she was not going to the Lord to heal her, to heal her brokenness. And here's the thing. We all have broken pieces. We all have circumstances that have driven us to a place of brokenness. I mean, in this room, some of your stories are just tragic and hard and bring tears to my eyes knowing what you've walked through. But here's what I can say is brokenness can lead us to bitterness as it did for Naomi, or brokenness can leave us to believing and believing that God is who he says he is, that God does not change even though our circumstances change, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that our circumstances are ever-changing, and Jesus promised that we would have trials, promised that we would have tribulation, but he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So that is our hope. Our hope is that in our brokenness, believing, believing that God has said, that he pours out his kindness, all those things, that steadfast love, that loyalty, that faithfulness, that is who God is. And I do not want to diminish anybody's brokenness. I don't want to, I am, please do not hear me that I am saying, get over it. What I would encourage you to do is to lament. And that I learned about really recently, just walking through some things. And I just want to read this to you. Laments are a form of prayer. Laments turn us towards God when sorrow tempts us to turn from him. Lamenting is talking to God about pain. It is an invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and our sorrows. And it is for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. And there is hope in that. There is such hope in that. And I just wanted to share this little piece um, so one of our dearest friends whom we met overseas, um, they recently walked through the death of their son. And their whole story with baby Henry just started with tragedy. He was born at 20 weeks and was in um, you know, the incubator thing for like a year and just has always been sickly. And he has this whole story of health struggles. And um, then he got a brain tumor. 
and um, had to have this surgery. I mean, it is just this story of sorrow and brokenness. Um, but more than that, of God's faithfulness. And I can only say that because his mom is one of my dearest friends. And, and, and my husband went up there during one of the surgeries to sit with Miles, the dad, because they're really great friends. And they sat through one of the, he sat through one of the surgeries. And it was like the faithfulness that God provided doctors for the surgery the faithfulness that Lisa's a nurse and they are not paying millions of dollars because they have insurance, the faithfulness that he survived the surgery. Like there were so many evidences of God's faithfulness. And you guys, we need to remember to remember. We need to remember to remember that God is faithful. He is who he says he is. At the time that I went up with Lisa, we were sitting in a hospital room and Henry had just gone through one round of chemo and he was about to go through another. The first round of chemo did not work and she was done. They decided to do one more round and just see. And you know what? Um, the Lord did not save Henry. He did not save Henry. He, he is fully healed now in heaven. But I have never sat through a more beautiful funeral service of a mother who lost a child. And she is saying, God is good. And using that service to minister to others who do not know the Lord. And when I was with her um, just for a week, a weekend, I asked her, and I, I, I just said, Lisa, it's okay. Like, maybe you're angry with God, and I just, I'm here for you. Like, I want to hear it. And she just said, so much more wiser than me. She said, Tina, I'm not angry. She said, even if I could be, I don't have the energy to. And this is what she said to me. She said, I am standing under the umbrella of faith, and I will not get out from under it. And so I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know your circumstance. But I want to encourage you to stand under the umbrella of faith because Jesus and hope is right there with you under that umbrella. So um, so then she's saying all these things. And then the last verse is a summary. It's a summary of what happened. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we have seen this chapter begin with departure and with famine. And it's coming full circle. It's coming full circle to a return and to a harvest. And this last little piece, the beginning of the the barley harvest, is important. This is an important time, setting the scene for the next chapter. And it's showing right now the providence of God that he would bring them back for such a time as this. I'm going to close us out in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these beautiful women. Thank you that they're here. Thank you that, um, that they're in your word and reading. And Father, I just pray that your spirit would pour out on them, that these words would leap off the pages and speak to their hearts, Father. Thank you, Lord, for their diligence. Thank you for their time. God, we just thank you that um, you are bigger. You are bigger than our circumstances. You are bigger than our brokenness. And we just, Lord, ask that you would bring us under the umbrella of faith. Father, that we um, would not grow bitter, Lord, but that we would believe that you are who you say you are. Help us to have faith. Help us to be loyal like Ruth. Help us to have her faith, Lord. Thank you that you are has said to us, Father, and help us to be has said to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.